Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here again, especially if you're new. If you haven't been before, it's good to have you with us. We're going to be looking at Luke in a second, so if you've got a Bible and want to take it out, go to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some at the welcome desk, and you can take that and keep it today. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We're beginning a new series this morning in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be spending the next seven or eight months working really slowly through the first half of Luke's Gospel, chapters 1 to 12. And apart from a small break in about September, October, we're going to be camped out in the first half of Luke's Gospel. It's called Good News to the Poor. It's a quote from Isaiah that Jesus uses twice of himself to speak of his identity in the Gospel of Luke. On one occasion, John the Baptist sends messages to Jesus. He himself is in prison, and he wants to know if Jesus is the one. And so he sends the messengers, and they get there, and they say, Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus says to them, You go back and you tell John this. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, those who are lepers are cleansed, and... The dead are raised up and good news is preached to the poor. This was all about Jesus' mission, was about preaching good news. His message is the good news of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to be spending the next seven months looking at Jesus, the man, the mission and the message of Jesus. As Brad mentioned earlier, Anchor Church is all about Jesus. And I'm excited about this series because I reckon this series is going to be really helpful for two groups of people. If you are a believer, if you're a a Christian, a follower of Jesus, then this series is going to be really helpful for you. And the reason I think that is because of Luke's purpose in writing. Have a look at chapter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. The verses will be on the screen behind me. This is Luke writing his introduction. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus. He's the, a guy that Luke has been commissioned to write a two-volume account of the life of Jesus in the early church to this guy, Theophilus. And the purpose of Luke's writing is this, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So if, if you're a believer, then this series is, is, is designed to give you faith, to strengthen you, to give you certainty about the things that you've been taught. And so I'm excited about it for that reason. But secondly, if, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're just inquiring and investigating Jesus, then I think that this series is going to be great for you as well. As we find out more about this person, Jesus, who radically tra- changed our world and turned it upside down. You notice three things about Luke's writing in those verses. We can have those, those verses up there. Three things about this account that Luke has written. The first is, he said that he has followed all things closely. He's investigated, he's, he's researched, he's done the hard work about who Jesus is and, and what were the events that surrounded his life. Secondly, you notice that he's been doing this for some time past. This isn't a short little project for Luke, like a little thing on the side. This is, this is almost like his life work. He's devoted himself. In fact, his second volume, the book of Acts, Luke travels with missionaries as they go and tell people about Jesus so he can get the facts right. And thirdly, you notice there that he's written very carefully. He says, I've written you an orderly account. For Luke, the details matter. 
the specifics about who Jesus was and what he did and what he said are important to Luke because he wants to give this guy, Theophilus, certainty and faith. And certainty and faith can't come if the details are shady. See, Luke does not expect Theophilus to believe or be assured if he's not really 100% sure about what the details were. And so Luke writes carefully. And it's the same for you. We don't, we don't come and say, you guys need to believe this message, but we're not really sure about all the details. No, no. We want you to believe this message based on the evidence of Jesus found in the Gospel of Luke. We don't want you to believe in something that is a myth that's not true. You'll notice as you read through Luke's Gospel, he, he begins to mention geographic locations and, and significant places and, and, and historic leaders and figures. What he's saying is, I'm writing this account and I'm grounding it in history. This is not fiction here. It's important for Luke because he wants faith. He wants certainty out of this. So I'm excited. We're going to be looking at Jesus, the man, the mission, the message of Jesus. I'm going to pray and we're going to look at this word together. So join me as I lead us. Father God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we ask this morning as as you address us in the scriptures, we pray that you would give us soft hearts. And I ask, Father, that for those here this morning who have experienced a sense of disappointment about circumstances in their life, that you would minister to them. I pray for those who are facing things that just seem impossible right now, that you would strengthen them and give them the faith that they need. And as we examine the example of three people, Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary, we pray that you would strengthen our faith and remind us of who Jesus is. And we ask this in your strong name. Amen. A while ago, I had a friend, a mate of mine, who told me a story of a couple that he knew who were told that they would never have children. Um, this guy's partner was, um, had a, a medical condition, not too sure what it was, but medical condition meant that it was literally medically impossible for her to ever have a child. And they were disappointed. They, they came to terms with the news and that they decided that they would live just, just enjoying life as much as they could. They were in their kind of late, mid, mid to late 20s. And so they decided they were going to party and enjoy life as much as they could. And they partied really hard. Like they partied hard. They took a lot of drugs, spent long hours on the weekend out partying. And then one day they found out that she was pregnant. So they went to the doctor they got the tests done, and the doctor said, you're pregnant. They're like, we know. You said this would never happen. And the doctor said, yeah, it shouldn't. Like, this is impossible. There is no way that you can be pregnant. We've got no idea how this has happened. And that really shook their world. It, it, it shifted their focus. I mean, for one, they decided they weren't going to party and take drugs anymore. They, they decided they were going to buy a house and begin to prepare for the arrival of this child. But it did another thing to them as well. It also, it also shifted their focus about God. They, they began to think, well, hang on a second. If, if medicine says that this is literally impossible and this has happened, what does that mean? What does it mean about our life? What does it mean about what we thought our, our purpose was? This morning we're going to look at two stories about two women who for them it's literally medically impossible that they would fall pregnant, and yet they do. The first couple we're going to look at is a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. So if you've got a Bible there, open up to Luke 1, starting at verse 5. This is what it says about Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there you go, Luke's grounding his story in, in historical events. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, and when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And he appeared, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the power, spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient of, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and... My wife is advanced in years. I'm not sure if that's a nice way of saying my wife's old. But she's advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in these days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. We're not really told how old they are, but it says they're advanced in years, and that probably means that they're pretty old. And they're also infertile. They haven't been able to have children. Now, in our culture, children is, you know, kids aren't that much of a big deal. Well, I guess they are, but, you know, you could choose not to have kids, in our culture. You, you could choose when and how many you would like, but, but in this culture it's very different. Kids are super important and it's less of an individual thing and much more of a communal family thing for children. There's a, there's a disgrace in this culture for women not to be able to bear children. Uh, these are ethnic families and they love to have lots of kids and Elizabeth can't have any. Children in this uh, culture are about inheritance, are about security and much more about identity. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are just too old. They haven't been able to have children. But you know, that doesn't stop them from praying because they know their Bible, they know the Old Testament, they, they know the story of Abraham and Sarah who had a child, a promised child, very, very late in their life. And so they pray and, and plead with God that He would change their circumstances. 
Despite their disappointment, verse 6 tells us that both Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous and blameless and are serving their God faithfully. As I hear those words, righteous and blameless, it casts my mind back to Job. The same words are used of him, a man who was upright before the Lord and, and yet faced a severe amount of suffering. And it's just a bit of a tangent, but it's a good reminder that, that sin and suffering are not always linked. In fact, very rarely are they linked. Here is a person who is upright. Here are two people who are righteous and blameless, and yet they suffer. Friends, the scriptures never promise that if you believe in Jesus, he will spare you of all disappointment. Now, there's no difference between those who believe and those who don't believe. The difference is how you choose to respond to that disappointment, how you choose to, to feel about that. Will, will you allow that suffering disappointment to make you bitter towards God? Or will you allow it to make you better? Put yourself in Elizabeth's shoes for a second. Here is a woman who is shunned, shamed and disgraced by her society. It would be very easy for her to resent God at that point. Say, God, you could have done this. You could have blessed us with a family, God, but, but you didn't. It would be very easy for Elizabeth to justify her sin. It may have even been tempting for her to turn her eyes away from her God and, and be tempted to worship the Greek gods, the gods of fertility, in the hope that maybe that might allow her to bear children. But their shame and their grief doesn't cause them to be bitter towards God. They're blameless. They worship, they serve their God. I don't know if you find yourself there. God hasn't quite done for you what you feel he ought to have. Life has served you up some circumstances that you're not happy with. And you're thinking, God, don't you know my, aren't you synced to my timetable, my plan? You feel like that? And we end up being bitter and angry about God's plans that he's given us. I know some of the stories of people at this church. I mean, some of you guys have stood on this platform and shared. And there's, there's pain. There's unmet expectations. There's unexplained suffering. Maybe for some there's the, the past hurt and pain of miscarriage or, or the, the disappointment of being unable to fall pregnant, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. You know, I think Luke holds up this couple as an example of, of people who love Jesus and face disappointment well. Not being bitter, but continuing to worship and serve their God. But you know, it doesn't mean that they have to pretend that everything's okay. It doesn't mean that they can't be real with God about their disappointment and their pain. It doesn't mean that they can't pray and ask that God would bless them with a child, even in the late stages of their life. And that's exactly what they've been doing. And chances are, this couple have been doing that for a very, very, very long time. Zechariah is a priest. He's a, a temple um, servant, he works at the temple. He's one of probably about 18,000 priests who would have worked in the temple. And his division gets to serve at the temple two weeks in the year. And of all the priests, someone gets chosen by lot. At random, someone gets chosen to go in and offer incense and offer prayer. And at this moment, God chooses this man to reveal 
to him that he's about, about to begin a fresh work and it's all going to start with his son. And so as Zechariah walks into the temple holding that, that jar of incense to offer prayers before God, an angel appears to him and brings this message. Check it out, verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. That, that prayer that you prayed, that prayer of God, please give us a child, that prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is a momentous message that this angel brings. It's huge because what he speaks there are the the last couple of verses and words of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, the angel comes and he says to Zechariah, Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, the very last words of the Bible, a prophet is coming, he's going to change the world, he's going to come, he's going to be just like that great prophet Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord's salvation. And then 400 years go by and nothing. God is silent. No prophets are raised up. And then in this moment of worship and prayer, God speaks sends an angel and God says, I'm about to do something very, very significant. You notice that here John is going to be a prophet who would turn people's hearts back to their God, prepare people for God's salvation. When we found out that we were pregnant, Tash and I, we went to get an ultrasound, 19-week ultrasound, and um, they can tell you the sex of the baby if it's in the right position. Our children are never in the right position for these ultrasounds. But uh, we went along and we asked the sonographer if, if she would not tell us what the sex was, but just write it on a piece of paper and then put it in an envelope and give it to us so that we could you know, read it later on in the, in the story. And so I'm expecting you know, we'll go out for dinner and have this nice romantic meal and open the envelope and read it and, and rejoice. And we get in the car and Tasha's like, open the envelope. I'm like, what, now already? So we open it and, and we read those words. It's a boy. And we celebrate, like, yes, it's a boy. And, and we prayed and we thanked God. And, but that was it. There was nothing about what we could, you know, what name we should give him and, and what he's going to do for a job and whether or not he's going to achieve anything significant in life. There was none of that. I remember after we brought Judah home, we used to have him sleeping in this little bassinet next to, next to Tasha's side of the bed so she could get up and feed and, and settle him if she needed to. And um, Tasha and Judah would be asleep and I'd be outside on YouTube normally late at night, YouTubing, Facebook, whatever. And then I'd, I'd come to bed and I'd walk into our room and I'd see this little bassinet and often I'd go up to the bassinet and, and I would pray over it. I'd stand there and I'd be like, God, fill this child with your spirit. Make him a world changer. You know, just use him for significant things. I think that's every parent's dream, isn't it? That their children would, would do something significant. You know, Zechariah and Elizabeth have so much revealed to them about their child, his name, what he will do, how he's going to be used by God. He's going to be a prophet. 
He's to be set apart for God's service. He's not to drink any strong drink or wine. He's to take a Nazarite vow at that point. And he's going to be filled with the Spirit of God from a very young age, even from the womb. And John the Baptist begins his prophetic ministry from his mother's womb. Next week we're going to see as Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, John is like kicking his mother in the womb, going, that's the one, that's the one. And, and Elizabeth rejoices. And so John, full of the Spirit in the womb, third trimester begins to point to Jesus already. He is to serve the Lord. He is to prepare the way for the arrival of God's salvation, for his Savior, for Jesus. Now, the significance of these events should not be lost on us. Because if, if you're familiar with the Bible, and, and I know a lot of you are, if you've read some of the Old Testament, you will know that God, just God seems to do this, right? He seems to pop up at times when it's really significant and take an old barren woman and bless her with a child and then change the world, right? Just think Genesis chapter 19. God arrives, sends an angel to Abraham, and he says, you know what, Abraham, despite the fact that you're 100 and your wife is 90, I'm going to give you a child, and you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and everyone is going to be blessed through you. And he opens the womb of a woman who's 90 years old and does exactly what he says. Or you flick the pages to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and there is Hannah, who is childless, and her husband's concubine is just giving him children and children and children and Hannah is weeping and fasting and praying and longing that God would change her circumstances and bless her with a child and at one time she's in the temple praying and weeping and she's praying so she's she's so um, profoundly grieved over this that the priest looks at her and he, he thinks she's drunk and she, he's like woman what are you doing and she's like I'm not drunk I'm just I just really want a child and, and God hears and he blesses her with a child, and, and that child is Samuel, a prophet. The prophet that would later anoint King Saul. And then later on, even more significantly, anoint King David, the greatest king of Israel. It seems that old age and infertility, and as we'll see in a second, even virginity, is no obstacle for God to do his work, to do impossible things. And so this angel comes and he brings Zechariah this good news. How does Zechariah respond? Check out verse 18. This is what he says. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Wrong answer, Zechariah. That is not what you're supposed to say when an angel comes and brings you good news. He asks for evidence. How shall I know this? Give me some kind of a sign. How, how do I know that this is true? You think to yourself, hang on a second, Zechariah. I mean, haven't, haven't you been praying for this? And haven't you been seeking after God to do this for you? And then when he finally does it and sends an angel, you doubt? The angel says to, to Zechariah, I stand in the presence of God. I'm Gabriel. Like, I'm not just any messenger. I'm the angel Gabriel. And I came to bring you this good news. And, and since you can't trust the promises of God, you can't speak them either. You're going to be silent for nine months. And so Zechariah, in a funny way, gets the sign that he's after, but probably not the way he wanted it. And he gets nine months to ponder 
the next words that will come out of his mouth. He's mute and silent. Zechariah goes home. Imagine the conversation after that, or the lack of conversation. He gets home to his wife and begins to play this game of charades. He's like, And then thinks to himself, oh, this is too hard. Get me a pen and paper. This is going to be a long nine months. I mean, right? And so for Zechariah and Elizabeth, sex becomes an act of faith. If they truly believe the message that Gabriel has brought that day, they need to get busy. They need to make the baby. And they do. And then verse 24 happens. Check it out. After these days, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in these days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Elizabeth rejoices that God has heard their prayers and he has answered. He's taken away her shame and disgrace. But God did it in his timing. And God did it in his way. And so often the case, isn't it, that we've got an agenda and we've got a plan and then, and then God does it his way and it often turns out so much better. I mean, Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted a child. God gave them a prophet who would change the world literally. But you're kind of left a little bit sour with this story because of Zechariah's doubt, his failure to take the message of the angel and believe it. But I think Luke has recorded that on purpose, and he contrasts that response to the message with Mary's response to another message from another, well, the same angel, actually. So let's have a look. This is Mary. We're going to pick it up at verse 26, chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, it's a pretty good place to conceive, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom of his kingdom when there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary is a, is a young girl. She's probably... Maybe as young as 12, maybe as old as 15, and she's engaged to get married. And the way it worked culturally for, for Jews around the first century was that you would have a 12-month engagement period, probably an arranged marriage, and um, 
you would be betrothed to be married and you, you couldn't sleep with your prospective future husband or wife for 12 months and then you would be married. But it's a very serious time. I mean, it's almost like you know, that, that, that betrothal period is so, so significant that you had to actually sign divorce papers to break that. That's how serious it was for them. And so it's in this 12-month period that this angel shows up to Mary and brings her a message. He says, Mary, you will conceive again. The child is given a name again. A purpose is given. Significance is told. The child's name will be Jesus. You know, the angel comes and, and he says to Mary, Mary, I'm about to fulfill what the prophet Nathan said all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm, that is about to be fulfilled right here, beginning with you. When the prophet Nathan prophesied that God would put a descendant of David on his throne and then that king would rule and reign forever, now is the time. Now is the time when that begins. This is big. This is really big news that this angel brings. And how does Mary respond? She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And you think to yourself, well, What's the difference between Mary's question and Zechariah's question? I think there's a lot. See, Zechariah's question is one of evidence. How shall I know that this is the case? Give me some kind of a sign. Prove it to me. Whereas I think Mary's question is more of the mechanics. How, how is this going to happen? Like me and Joseph, you know, we haven't, we're waiting. It's a question of how is this going to take place? Zechariah and Elizabeth have been seeking and praying after this. Mary hasn't been seeking this at all. Zechariah is a priest. He knew the scriptures. He should have known better, really. Whereas Mary is a young girl. She's got no life experience. And she's got no framework for this. There is no framework for a virgin giving birth. Zechariah has very little to lose to believe the angel's message. And Mary, she's got everything to lose. And in the end, it's Mary who expresses trust and belief, and it's Zechariah who expresses doubt. And it could, it could be the other way around, and you'd feel comfortable with that, right? If, if Zechariah was like, yes, praise God, I believe, and, and Mary expressed doubt, you would, you would almost forgive a 12-year-old girl for having some doubts over that message, right? But it's not the case. She is the one who believes the message, the promise. And the question for Mary, I think, is... How is, how is this going to happen? I mean, I don't really know what was going through her head, but you could think, is she thinking, does, does God want me and Joseph to, like now, before marriage? That, that's her question, and it seems appropriate. And the angel responds to Mary, and he says, no, it doesn't need to happen like that. The Holy Spirit is going to come on you. The power of God will overshadow you, and, and, and God will give you this child. He will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. Because nothing is impossible. And then he gives Mary evidence. I mean, Zechariah wanted it and didn't really get it, but he gives Mary evidence. He said, I know you didn't ask for this, Mary, but I'm just going to tell you, Elizabeth, she's about to hit her third trimester. That old woman who was barren, she's having a baby. So if that's possible, this is possible as well. I can do anything. And then check out, Mary's response, it, it's beautiful. Verse 38, this is what she says. 
It's profound, it's simple, and it's sweet from a young girl. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Let it, let it be to me according to your word. That's faith. That's trust. Not, well, well hang on a sec, what are people going to think of me? Or what's Joseph going to think when I come to him and say, um, I'm pregnant and it's not yours, I know, but it's God's. What, what are my parents going to think of me? No, she, she doesn't say any of those buts. She's, okay, let it be to me according to your word. Gabriel asks a young teenage girl who's about to fall pregnant in a culture that dishes out capital punishment for the sin of adultery to tell people that she's having God's baby. And she says, okay, that's faith, that's trust. It's incredible that such a young girl would express such faith and trust so deeply. You know, I think Luke purposefully contrasts those two characters, Zechariah and Mary, say that this is the response that we ought to have. Mary is the example of how we respond to God. And God loves a believing and available heart. He loves it. He loves a believing and available heart. So my question is, do you have that? Do you have a believing heart? Do you have a life that is available for God to come and say, I want to use you for this? My guess is God isn't going to send you an angel. He might, and that would be pretty cool, but chances are he won't. But what he has given is his word, and it's full of promises, lots of them. And we can be guaranteed that every single one of the promises that God has made in this book, he will keep his good for his word. The question is, will we choose to believe? Will we have faith? Will we trust? When God says, disregard the culture's animosity towards the message that you believe and tell your story anyway. Will you say, God, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. When God says, I want you to step out of your comfort zone, I want you to join this, this church plant, and, and I want you to take a step of faith and, and move into the city, will you say, God, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. When God says, I want, I want you to trust me. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about clothes. Don't worry about food. In fact, don't worry about tomorrow. You say, God, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. When, when Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me, we say, Lord, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Friends, faith is not grown in a vacuum. Faith is grown as, as you take a step, as you take a risk, as you get out of your comfort zone. You know, faith is the words of that song that we sang earlier that, that Ruth beautifully led us in, Oceans. I don't know if you realize, that's a dangerous song to sing. The words of that song are to ask that God would lead you to a place where you're completely uncomfortable, where your faith is borderless, you need him more than anything else when fear is significant, the risk of failure is real. That's a dangerous song to sing. That's a dangerous prayer. But that's faith. 
And you know, I, I can't help but think that's exactly where Mary is. She's in a world where she's got no concept of what's about to happen, no idea of how people will respond, and yet she's got to trust that God is good, he's got a plan, and she's going to follow him and believe. How do we respond when God calls us to something that in our framework and in our strength is impossible? But maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're thinking, a virgin, giving, I mean, come on, right? Serious? That doesn't happen. That's impossible. I mean, we're in the scientific age. We've moved on from thinking that, that virgins can give birth to babies. It just doesn't happen anymore. Christianity is a myth. But you know, the problem with that is, is Joseph. Because Joseph didn't believe that. So it's a mistake to think that uh, the people of the Bible are gullible and Joseph's gullible. Joseph didn't believe that. I mean, he's thinking to himself, she's got to be lying to me. I'm, I'm just going to divorce her on the download, be quiet about it and get rid of her. And He doesn't believe. So the question is, what would cause a man to risk his reputation and to risk his family and to even risk his life to side with his young teenage bride, it's that an angel appears to him and says, Joseph, no, no, don't divorce her. Marry her and adopt Jesus as your son. And he does, he believes. So the problem with thinking that this is it's that the original, the people in the story didn't believe it. And yet they still went through. Joseph still went through and said his vows and married Mary and adopted Jesus. You know, if God is God, then he can do that, right? I mean, if this is the God of the Bible who spoke the world into existence, it's pretty simple for him to allow a virgin to have a baby. And for me, I've got no problem with miracles in the Bible. I've got no problem with things that are scientifically unexplainable because my worldview has in it a God who is powerful and can do anything. And so a virgin giving birth fits my framework. God is real and he makes impossible things possible because he owns this world. He made it and everything is his. And you know, since God is in the business of doing impossible things, I think it means that we ought to bring those impossible things to God, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth did. They prayed. They prayed for years. And, and at what point would it have got to them thinking, we should just stop? I mean, this is beyond a joke. Like, Zechariah, my, my 80th birthday. At what point do you stop, right? But they don't. They just keep praying, God, please do this. Why? Because God is in the business of doing impossible things, of making impossible things possible and so I think he invites us to come to him and so my challenge to you this week is to take some time to write an impossible prayer list write 10 things that you think are humanly impossible and begin to pray that God would do those things and then step back and and see what God does pray big pray in faith and see a God who is in the business of making impossible things possible. But you know, in the end, this story is not so much about Zechariah and Elizabeth and even Mary. Now, this story is about that baby, Jesus. These guys, they're just a footnote. They're just in the introduction. 
This story is about a king. The, the very thing that that angel came and said to Mary about her child. He will be king and his throne will reign forever. And Jesus is as much king today as he was the very first day that Mary held him in her arms. He is king. He's sitting on the throne and he has died on the cross. He's defeated death. He has risen again. He's king of kings. He is Lord of lords and he is worthy, entirely worthy of all our worship and honor and praise. And my hope as we walk through Luke's gospel is that you'll be blown away by Jesus. You'll be blown away by who he is as a person. You'll be blown away by this radical message that he came to preach. And you'd be blown away by his mission, a mission to come and die on the cross, to take away your sins, to take away mine. Friends, we're going we're gonna to respond to this Jesus now. We're going to have a time of response and praise and worship. And, and in this time, we invite you to pause and reflect, to pray, to confess, to do business with God if you need to, to, to come to Jesus if you need to. And then as you feel ready to come forward and to take two symbols of grace, bread and wine, you, you dip, or grape juice rather, dip the bread into the grape juice, and as you eat it, remember what Jesus has done, that his blood was spilled, that his, bro- his body was broken for you, that you might have new life and a fresh start. I'm going to pray, the band's going to come up, and we're going to respond. So please join me. Let, me. let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who has a perfect and good plan. And we know you don't always operate on our timetable and in the way we think you should. But so often when you do that, Lord, it's way better than we expected. We thank you, God, that you're the God who, after 400 years of silence, brought a message about a fresh work that you would begin, starting with two children, John the Baptist and Jesus. Father, as we face things in our lives that that we just feel are literally impossible. A city of 4.6 million people that we're on mission to. Injustice in our city that we just feel we, we can't do anything about. Would you help us to be bold enough to bring impossible things to your throne of grace and pray that you would do with them as you please for your glorious purposes. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.